Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part three of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter nine. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. All these things the Jews write, ceaselessly, abruptly ended the moment Sarah died. These three things about her tent all vanished. The three characteristics of Sarah's tent run parallel characteristics to the tabernacle in the desert, the holy of holies in the temple, like her shoe bread, her, her dough. The light prefigures the menorah in the holy of holies and the wind, the ruha of the Holy Spirit, the cloud that, that obscured the vision to the holy of holies. Just fun to think about. Paul goes on to the next matriarch now. And we're going, we're reviewing through these. And we just did Genesis last year, which is wonderful. Not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and they had nothing, done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of God's call, Isaac was the oldest of the patriarchs at the time of his death. He lived the longest. He's the only one, his name never changed. Rabbinic literature also links Isaac's blindness in his old age, as stated in the Bible, to that sacrificial binding. When his father was going to sacrifice him, Isaac's eyes were blind, they say, because the tears of the angels present at the time of this sacrifice fell on Isaac's eyes. Isaac was the only patriarch who stayed in Cana his whole life, though he tried to leave once, God told him not to, the rabbis write. Rabbinic tradition gave the explanation that Isaac was almost sacrificed, and anything dedicated as a sacrifice to the Lord may not leave the land of Israel. In rabbinic tradition, the age of Isaac at the time of binding is thought to be 36 or 37 years old, which contrasts a lot with a lot of the paintings who put Isaac as a child. They tried to find older looking Isaacs. The rabbis say he was at least 36 or 37 years old when this son of promise was bound by his father and made ready to sacrifice. And the rabbis thought that the reason for the death of Sarah was the news of the intended sacrifice of her promised son, Isaac. And the sacrifice of Isaac is cited in appeals for the mercy of God in later Jewish traditions. God's incredible mercy to stop the sacrifice. The Agadahs and non-legalistic exegesis, which appears in the classical rabbinical literature of Judaism, particularly the Talmud and the Midrash, and according to many accounts of Agadah, this text recited at the Seder on the first two nights of the Jewish Passover includes a narrative of the Exodus. And I found this extremely interesting. The Agadah says it is Satan who was testing Isaac as an agent of God. So if you have a 36 or 37-year-old man going with a 100-year-old man up a mountain, I mean, Isaac totally could have bolted. Agatha says it's Satan who's testing Isaac. Is he an agent of God? Is he the Messiah, perhaps, the promised one that Satan's been waiting for, the one who's predicted to smash Satan's head? On Passover night, the new Isaac, Jesus, the antitype, is also being tested by Satan to see if he is a true agent of God. I believe this in the Garden of Gethsemane, another garden where Satan is active. So we see it in Mel Gibson's Passion. He has a, does a beautiful job with this. The old Isaac's willingness to follow God's command at the cost of his own death 
the new Isaac's willingness to follow God's command at the cost of his own death. The old Isaac is unbound just in the nick of time and set free. But by resisting the temptation to throw in the towel, the new Isaac, the new Isaac could have not gone through with it. He could have thrown in the towel. He could have not drank the cup. But he says, thy will be done, Father. Could a cup pass from me? But thy will be done. And Jesus will unbound the entire earthly family. He's cried a greater new Isaac. But we see the, the incredible similarities. Not my will, but your will be done, Father. His sweat, the new Isaac, became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. You imagine both Isaacs, one being bound, his father willing to, ready, ready to sacrifice him. And this Isaac, the tears of blood dropping onto the cursed ground of Adam. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And the angel came to stop Abraham and the angel came to minister to Jesus Christ, the new Isaac. And according to Jewish tradition, it was Isaac who instituted the afternoon twilight prayer at three o'clock, his time of sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Also, there was a big deal made in Genesis last year about Isaac getting a bride, and it had to be the right bride, the correct bride, the bride called by God. Abraham was old. Sarah was dead. He's advanced in years. Isaac doesn't have a kid yet. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his house, it's Eleazar is his name, put your hand under my thigh and, and swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife for my son Isaac. Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites among where I dwell, but go to my country and my kindred and take a wife from my son Isaac. And the Lord will send an angel before you and you shall take a wife from my son. So the servant Eleazar put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham. He swore concerning this matter. He took 10 of his master's camels and departed with all sorts of choice gifts from the master Abraham. He arose, Eleazar did, and went to Mesopotamia. He made the camels lay down outside the city well at the water at the time of the evening when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, grant me success today, I pray thee, and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming to draw water. Let the maiden of whom I shall say, pray, let down your jar that I might drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom thou hast appointed to thy servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown steadfast love to my master Abraham. Before he was done speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born in Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahar, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar upon her shoulder. And the maiden was very fair to look upon, a virgin whom no man had known. And she went down to the spring. She filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Pray, give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly ran and let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when he had finished the drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels also until they have been done drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw and she drew for all 10 of his camels. Now we know that 10 camels multiplied by 15 gallons of water each. She drew at least 150 gallons of water that day. And Eliezer gazed at her in silence. He's praying. He gazes at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Is this the one, Lord? And he presented her a gold ring 
weighing half a shekel, two bracelets for her arm, weighing 10 golden shekels. And Eliezer bowed his head and worshiped the Lord God and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, Lord has led me into the house of my master's kinsman. They called Rebecca to see if she will go and be a wife for Isaac. Will you go with this man, Eliezer? And she said, I will go. She said yes without even knowing him, without even seeing Isaac. Very similar to the wedding, the the marriage of God to Israel. All that the Lord has said we will do. They said it before they even knew God, marrying before knowing. Isaac went out to the field to meditate in the twilight. Remember Isaac, the founder of the afternoon prayer? Three o'clock in the afternoon, he's out in the fields praying. He lifts up his eyes and he looks and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes and she saw Isaac and she alighted from the camel. And she said to Eleazar, who, who is this man yonder walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. So she took well, she took her veil and she covered herself. Now she's the bride and she's veiling herself. Remember when we studied Revelation, that's the unveiling of the bride. The veil is lifted. The servant told Isaac, all the things he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent, and that would have been Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother Sarah's death. After Sarah died, Isaac missed his mother. Sarah's tent was passed on to Rebekah and Isaac. And remember Sarah's tent, the wind of the Holy Spirit, the dough that was always blessed and the perpetual light of the candle from Shabbat to Shabbat. Well, now the three miraculous phenomena had ceased at Sarah's death. But now when Rebekah moved in the tent, the rabbis write that the tent again began producing the three miraculous phenomena. The candles remained lit from Friday to the next. The dough was blessed as all, and it always sufficed enough for family and guests and offered hospitality to all to come and eat bread in this tent. And and again, the divine cloud came and attached to the tent. So if we look at the typology, if Jesus is the new Isaac, then Rebecca is the new church, his bride. And it's interesting because Isaac, in a world of polygamy, Isaac took only one bride his entire life. The candle remained lit in the tent, just like the perpetual candle when Jesus is present in the church. The dough was blessed and always sufficed the family and guest. We never run out of Eucharist at Mass. And the divine cloud was attached to the tent, the incense that goes up, the Holy Spirit alive in the heart of the church, the blessing of the glory of God, his Holy Spirit among us. The new bride of the new Isaac is the universal church. Was he 36 or 37? The rabbis say, and eh, they're not sure, one or the other. Hmm. Isaac, we know, was 40 years old when he took Rebecca to be his wife. Isaac was 40 years old. At the time of the sacrifice, was he 36 or 37? He, he's 40 when he marries. It's three years away or four years away. Hmm. I think 36 because six is less than the perfect covenant of seven. That'll be, I don't know. I don't know. That's another lecture. Okay. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife now because she's barren. They're living in Sarah's tent where Sarah was barren and now Rebecca is barren. Abraham had given everything he had to Isaac. After Sarah died, Abraham married Keturah and Abraham sent Keturah away 
from her son Isaac east to the east country. Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife. She's barren. The Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. What the scripture doesn't tell us right there, it tells us later, it took 20 years to, to answer his prayer. So she was infertile for 20 years. 20 years years. The bride of Isaac is pregnant when Isaac becomes 60 years old. So the bride of the new Isaac Jesus is expectant with life, the church. The children struggle together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why do I live? She went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples born of you shall be divided. One will be stronger than the other. The elder's going to serve the younger. Now, Paul, the elder Jew, will serve the younger Gentile brother his entire ministry. He goes to preach first to the Jews that they often don't want to hear it in the synagogue. And so he goes to the Gentiles, the younger brother, Paul and Peter. Peter goes to the Jews. Paul goes to the Gentiles. Together, they will build one holy Catholic apostolic bride. Isaac, in his whole life, only took one bride. One bride, not 30,000 brides. <laughs> there are 30,000 and plus Christian denominations to this day. That was not why God prayed the high priestly prayer in John 17, that we all be one. Back to the one bride of Isaac, only patriarch who just took one bride. She's pregnant with twins. When the day was delivered that they that was fulfilled, there were twins in her womb. One was red and hairy. They called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth, took hold of Esau's heel. He supplanted him He got so he could get out first, but it didn't work. His name was Jacob. Isaac is 60 years old. There are two nations, Jews and Gentiles. We know Esau will become the Edomite nation. These two nations will be constantly warring with one another. Right from the get-go, Isaac favors Esau, leaving Rebekah to favor Jacob the supplanter. Isaac loves Esau because he loves to eat his game. He's a hunter. Rebekah will love Jacob. These warring nations in her womb, it turns out to be true. But Rebekah's tent, which is Sarah's former tent, will be a safe haven for Jacob, a place of safety where he can come. And Rebekah will assist him in attaining a birthright and a blessing. So there's a typology there. Think of Rebekah's tent as the church, the bride of the new Isaac. And the church will assist the second-born son, the Gentiles, in attaining a birthright right and a blessing through baptism available to all Jew and Gentile. Both nations can come under this tent. Romans 9, back to Paul. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of the works, but because of God's call, she was told, Rebekah was told, the elder will serve the younger, as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul again is talking about this election. God can choose who God wants to choose. And he's quoting there from Malachi chapter 1 about Israel. Jacob is preferred over Edom. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how has thou loved us? Is it not Esau's Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, yet I have hated Esau. He's, um, that's a over statement because God doesn't hate. God is love, but he prefers, he elects Jacob, who he names Israel, over Esau, who becomes Edom. Why? Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord because the border of 
Jacob of Israel. God does this to display his greatness, that he might be exalted and magnified to the nations. God has a purpose of election. Genesis shows that God's favor rested on Jacob before either boy was even born. God had chosen. God had a call on his life. And although their initial condition was the same, although the parties in question were equal, they were brothers, the Lord set his love on Jacob, not Esau, for no reason intrinsic to themselves, because this love was unmerited and unchanging from before their ancestors' birth. God has loved Israel, which is what he named, renamed Jacob. We might be tempted to say God did it for no apparent reason. Only God knows the end of his story, history, his story. Okay, going on in Romans 9, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, says Paul, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I I will have compassion. It's God's choice. So it depends not upon man's will or exertion, but upon God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy upon whomever he wills and he hardens the heart of whomever he wills. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. You remember the Lord saying this in Exodus 33 when Moses was interceding on behalf of the golden calf apostasy. It depends not upon man's will or exertion, but on God's mercy. Everything in the end is going to depend on God's divine plan of mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I've raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, He has mercy upon whomever he wills, and he hardens the heart of whomever he wills. Now, you remember the great Pharaoh of Egypt in our study of the Exodus, and Abraham's children, the Israelites, were oppressed, remember, for over 400 years. Then there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Jacob's son, Joseph. God would raise up a deliverer named Moses from the house of Levi, and Moses' God would send a series of 10 progressive plagues across Egypt with each progressive act of God showing more and more the power of God and the heart of Pharaoh would get harder and harder with each and every show of God's magnificence. It's like God's warm light kept hardening Pharaoh's clay heart. He didn't keep any sort of soft heart toward Moses' God because Pharaoh had obstinate free will and it was strong will. The scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Had Pharaoh not been so obstinate or so stubborn, God's glory wouldn't have shown and been manifested so greatly. So it's to show the greatness of God, as Malachi says. Now, while we're on this topic, you are God's treasured clay, each and every one, a different creation, a different vessel by God. And Paul goes on to say, will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist God's will? But who are you, a man to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for beauty and the other vessel for menial use? I mean, look at all of us. We're all so different. We're all, we all have different gifts from the Holy Spirit. We all have different missions and different shapes and forms and colors. And, you know, like to say, oh, I 
like her pot better. Look at that green one. It has handles. I really like that one. You know, I mean, that's not what God wants. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath made for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. We are all called by God. We are all destined to be in the heart of love itself one day. Every single clay, the potter, if we stay soft, he can mold us and refashion us and rework us and use us. Now, we're getting to the end of the chapter. He goes to Hosea. This is Romans 9, verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Now, there is an amazing love story in the book of Hosea. Hosea is an 8th century prophet in Israel. And the Talmud claims that he was the greatest prophet of his generation. The period of Hosea's ministry extends six decades. He's the only prophet of Israel of his time who left any written prophecy. So Hosea is considered the first of the 12 minor prophets. And his name, Hosea, actually means salvation. Hosea, he saves or he helps. Hosea conducted his prophetic ministry in northern Israel, the Samaria area where he was a native. And Hosea is told by God to marry a harlot, marry a prostitute. His marriage will dramatize the breakdown in the relationship between God and his people Israel. Hosea's family would reflect the adulterous relationships which Israel had built with polytheistic gods. Israel played the harlot time and time and time again, and God always took her back. Hosea and his wife Gomer will parallel the relationship between God and his adulterous wife Israel. So when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits great harlotry by forsaking the Lord. And each time Gomer, the harlot and wife of Hosea, bears a child of harlotry, Hosea takes her back along with her child. The first son is called Jezreel. The second daughter is called Not Pitied, for I will no longer have pity on the house of Israel, says the Lord. The third son is called Not My People, for you are not my people. I'm not your God. Now, the law said that a woman caught in adultery should be stoned to death. But in John 8, Jesus, the new Hosea, shows us mercy. Jesus is a new Hosea. Let he who was without sin cast the first stone. Hosea means salvation. He is salvation to this woman. He saves this woman. He helps this woman. And each time in the book of Hosea, Hosea forgives and has mercy and takes Gomer back time and time and time again with her new child of harlotry. Hosea shows incredible incredible, incredible mercy. So Paul is going to use this example of Hosea in that day, in the day of the Lord, in the day when Messiah comes, says Hosea, and I will sow him for myself in the land. I will have pity on the not pitied, and I will say not to not my people that you are my people, and he will say, thou art my God. So Paul says, as it says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, the Gentiles. I will call her my beloved one, the church, the whole mystical body, everyone who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the children of the living God. Finally, Isaiah. Paul points to Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only 
a remnant of them will be saved. A remnant, a scrap, a small proportion. The Lord will execute his sentence upon the earth with rigor and dispatch. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us children, we would have fared like Sodom and been made like Gomorrah. Paul's saying if we wouldn't have been children of God, if we wouldn't have been the chosen elect, we would have been destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah because we would have been so full of sin without the law, we wouldn't have known right from wrong. Finally, Romans 9, verse 30, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is righteousness through faith. But that Israel who purchased the righteousness, which is based on law, did not succeed in fulfilling the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it through faith, but as if it were based on works of the law. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall. And he who believes in him will not be put to shame. What does Paul mean? What stumbling block is this? The stumbling block is Jesus Christ and his cross. He tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, the Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's the paradox of the cross. We heard it last week, the suffering, joining Christ in his cross for the redemption of the world. And Jesus Christ himself tells us that's the way to go, to follow him. If any man, Luke 9, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? world and loses or forfeits his soul. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Last thought for tonight, you are God's treasured clay. What if you've messed up? What if you haven't lived the life you wanted to live? What if you have regrets? Well, Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I, Jeremiah, went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his will. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And the potter, God, reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good for the potter to do. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, says the Lord. The Lord's saying, I can recraft you. I can remold you. I can remake you. I can refashion you. We are all clay in the potter's hand if we stay soft-hearted and moldable by the power of the Holy Spirit living within our broken pots. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for Paul's message tonight. As he goes through the patriarchs and shows us where you're hidden in the Old Testament, how you are a stumbling block to many, Lord. Even today, people don't want the cross. People don't want to suffer with you. People want to deny that part of you. But that's where the power is, the power of the cross. And through all our brokenness, you shine out if we allow you to, and you heal us, and you perfect us. And our pots hold much water of life, the river of life, the Holy Spirit within us. And we praise and thank you. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, the river of life, now and forever. Amen. That was part three of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter nine. 
on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.